Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello guys, welcome to the seventh episode of the Mango TV podcast. I'm here with Ethan Nedelman, very excited for this conversation. Described by Rolling Stones as the point man for drug policy reform efforts and the real drug czar, Ethan Nedelman is widely regarded as the outstanding proponent of drug policy reform, both in the United States and abroad. He founded and directed first the Linda Smith Center and then the Drug Policy Alliance from 1994 to 2017, during which time he and his colleagues were at the forefront of dozens of successful campaigns to legalize marijuana and advance other alternatives to the war on drugs. Ethan currently hosts the leading podcast on all things drugs called Psychoactive. Welcome, Ethan. It's a pleasure, Giancarlo. So I would like to propose you something different. Rather than me asking questions on your expertise on, on drug policy, I would like your help to educate our audience on um, a bunch of different psychoactive drugs. I want to premise that um, people listening, don't do these drugs alone. Find a guide, find a sitter, like you wouldn't go on top of a volcano alone. So be mindful, some of the substances are illegal. Some can, be very, can give very adverse reactions. So um, be educated and have, a, have, a, have an expert guide. So I... Um, choose 12 compounds and uh, we're going to see if we can um, go through all of them and, uh, and just share our, our experience. Um, I want to add uh, two variables. So one thing people usually underestimate when they talk about um, psychedelic drug effect is the dosage. So some of these compounds have a very different effect. Uh, so we're going to try to be mindful of when we talk about the effect, um, in, in, in being clear if it's low, medium, or high dose. And then the other thing we have to be mindful when we talk about this, um, this compound is the intention. So what are we looking to achieve? Do we want a recreational or celebration outcome? Do we want a medical or psychotherapeutic session? Or do we want a spiritual transcendental session? So um, let, me let me tell you the compound I choose, and let me know if you think I should, we should remove or add something. So I have for you to discuss today, cannabis, marijuana, mushroom, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, peyote, San Pedro, DMT, 5 DMT, ketamine, cambo, and 2CB. Huh, okay, well, I, I have never done peyote. Um, I've done mescaline once, but you know, uh, I don't know if it was all that different for me than having done mushrooms. Um, Tombo, uh, I've been offered it to it, and I uh, somehow the notion of purging in the way that Tombo does, uh, I've turned away from that. And I haven't done San Pedro either. So I think the, uh, the other ones, I have anything ranging from a single experience to a half dozen many years ago to much more recent experience. Great. So let's start from the beginning. So uh, marijuana, what's your favorite use? How? Tell us a little bit <laughs> your, your relationship with that plant. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, first of all, that has been, marijuana has been basically my friend for many years. I didn't start till I was 18 years old. I'm now 64. So, you know, we've been friends for 46 years. And I'd say it's been an overwhelmingly positive relationship. I should preface that first by saying I know people for whom marijuana is a terrible relationship. People who not just become paranoid, but become delusional. So, you know, people who become addicted to it in a way that's problematic in their lives. So I don't want to say marijuana is for everybody. I'm lucky in that virtually all my drug relationships have been generally or almost entirely positive. So, but I understand that's not the case for everybody else. But marijuana, I mean, I've never been a daily consumer. I mean, there might be moments when I'm at a festival or with a certain friend who gets high every day and I might smoke multiple days in a row, but I, I almost have an anti-addictive personality. So if I smoke three, four days in a row, like I don't want to even smoke uh, the, the following day, you know, I just want to clear out. What I like 
is if, I, if I've not smoked marijuana for a week or two or more, the first time I do it, it's delicious, right? I mean, especially good marijuana. And what happens to me is I start to stretch. I get this incredible desire to stretch and to be in my body. I remember it was funny when I was younger, and I'd be walking along with my daughter down the streets of Manhattan, and she would be so embarrassed when all of a sudden in the middle of the road, I'd stop and stretch. You know, now she's growing accustomed to it. But marijuana, it helps me get in my body. I love it with things like um, uh, swimming. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, look, we all know about marijuana and food. We know about marijuana going to the movies. You know, marijuana, including edible form for going to the symphony has been beautiful. Um, for me, the least developed of my sensibilities, you know, food, taste, sense, and all that is my aesthetic sensibility. So for me, getting high before I go to a museum really significantly elevates the experience. I have a vivid memory of being in Prague and going to this house in Prague that was a museum of a famous turn-of-the-century, you know, Czech artist who had done in all sorts of forms and just being captivated in a way that I never would have without the marijuana. But when it comes to the present day, my typical use of marijuana now, my favorite use, is once a week when I'm home in New York, I take 10 milligrams of edible marijuana, grab my headphones, and head down to the corner where there's a Chinese massage place, and I have a multi-hour massage, and for very deep massage, you know, walking on the backs of my legs and my sides. And for me, I think that keeps me centered. It's my own base. It's my closest thing I have to a real meditation in my life. My brain just floats. I come out of there feeling great, and I think of it as an integral part of my process of healthy aging. Amazing, amazing, and and uh, and for me it's complicated. You know, I had a problem of abuse. I end up being in a rehabilitation. I went on a rehab for weed for marijuana. Yeah, wow. we were there. We were there. Everybody was like, "Why are you here? Crystal meth, heroin, crack, cocaine, alcohol." And I was like, "Cannabis." And um, you know, it's for me it was very difficult to use without abuse. Mm -hmm. And uh, Graham Hancock says that um, every plant has a spirit, and every spirit has a personality. So the ayahuasca is the loving grandmother, the peyote or the iboga is the stern grandfather, and the marijuana is the trickster spirit. So it tricks you in belief that you need it every day. Hmm. And uh, and so so it's a it's a it's a tricky one. Okay, what about mushrooms? So just for our audience, a typical low dose of mushroom. I mean, in the low dose now there is also the microdose, which is very popular, which is the James Fadiman protocol of zero twenty zero fifteen, just pre perceptional, uh, one day every three days. Um, so this is becoming very popular now. But the low dose is roughly I would say half a gram. A medium dose, also called museum dose, is like maybe a two grams. And then high dose is when we go into, you know, five plus into full ego dissolution. Um, so tell us about your relationship with Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I mean, for me, I've rarely done the low dose. In fact, the first time I ever really did it, uh, there was a friend of mine having a 50th birthday party whose name happens to be Giancarlo Canavesio. <laughs> and at that party, he, uh, he was making available to his guests some chocolate you know, mushrooms at about one gram, half a gram, one gram, and I think some other substances, maybe chocolate cannabis as well. And I had I just the perfect dose. And I will say, I danced that night like I don't think I've ever danced in my life. I had a spectacular time at your birthday party, Giancarlo. And I came away going, I didn't know mushrooms could be so much fun in the low dose. And so, you know, but then, quite frankly, a few weeks ago, I was in Europe um, and uh, I, I actually, it was, in, I'll say in Scandinavia, I won't say the exact city, and somebody was offering chocolate mushrooms, and I took it at about the same dose, thinking I was going to go to a place with a wonderful DJ and let loose and dance, and it turned out to be a whole bunch of people standing around an ugly-looking bar-type thing, and I just had a you know, get through it, find, you know, somebody I could talk to and focus on them and just not be too bummed out about the whole thing. So I'm increasingly intrigued by that, um, the lower dose use of mushrooms, maybe combined with, a, with, with some cannabis um, for, you know, having fun. That said, almost my entire experience with mushrooms has been the high dose. It's been the four, five, six grams of marijuana, of, of mushrooms, of dry mushrooms. 
And I started when I was about 23. I must have done about 10 times back then. And they have played an incredibly important role in my life. Uh, so blindfolded with the headset? I never have done them blindfolded. I have friends who told me if you haven't done them blindfolded, you haven't really done them. But I would tend to do them um, going out, uh, maybe in nature, maybe at the beach, uh, maybe going outside to come on and then coming back to my apartment or my friend, a friend's place. Um, but I'll tell you, if I think about Let's say I've done mushrooms at a high dose maybe 25 times in my life. And then if you take the, the, um, the, say, the four hours between the time when you're peaking and then when the kind of you start to come down, um, in those 100 hours of my life, I have had some of the most important sort of uh, uh, intellectual insights in my life. I used to be a professor that really made a difference to me. I've had the most amazing culinary experience in my life. I had what in some respects was the most extraordinary orgasm of my life. I saw the most beautiful sunset of my life. And, and the moment um, when I was 32... And actually at the Telluride Mushroom Conference in, in uh, Colorado that Andrew Weil used to organize with others, um, you know, I had a moment there which where my sort of vision of what my life was going to be, this life in drug policy reform, sort of crystallized for me. You know, it wasn't an epiphany, but it really crystallized in that way. And so I'd say mushrooms have just played this really, really powerful um, uh, you know, spiritual, intellectual, psychological, social—you know—role in my life. Well, so there, there was a, there was a, um, if you want, like an arc on those twenty-five session. Would you go back to where you left and then build on it? Or? Well, it's funny you ask that because I did it. I think nine times between the age of twenty-three and twenty-five. And uh, and that was and then you know very good experiences overwhelmingly no bad no bad ones although I do have two bad ones I could talk about but then what happened was the last one of these experiences I was 25 I was you know approaching the end of a long term relationship that I'd been in with since the beginning of college I was trying to think through what my focus was going to be in life was I going to become an activist or become an academic was I going to keep studying what was then my specialty Middle East politics or go into something new this is right before I got into the drug thing and at the end. I remember the mushrooms came on and I start muttering like conflict, conflict, con. I was just muttering conflict and I was feeling this energy coursing through my body, but just feeling conflict, conflict. Anyway, my life changed quite a bit. I shifted my focus, changed relationships, met the woman who was going to become my wife, did not do mushrooms for seven years. And then in Telluride, after seven years, I take them for the first time in seven years. And the drug starts to come on fairly strong. And it's like just jumping right back to where I'd been seven years earlier, like conflict, conflict, I'm just conflict. But then the thing, I started to get up, and sometimes when the mushroom energy is coming on very strong at that high dose, I like to be very physical. So I started running through this field. It was the, actually the Telluride High School on a summer weekend, right? And, and, and run, running, getting all the energy going, and then the conflict kind of dissolved. And it was in that session that I really reached the realization that, you know, that my life was really going to be about teaching about drugs, about psychoactive drugs, and that it did not matter whether I stayed in the university or went into politics or journalism or advocacy, but that this was going to be my calling in life. And that teaching about drugs would be a vehicle for speaking out about some of the broader issues that we were confronting in our society. And, and reduce conflict. For me, it was just it was just a settling. It was a centering that was very beautiful and very calming. A few weeks later, well, a week later, less than that, I went into, it was a TV show, Dan Rather, 48 Hours on Crack Street or whatever. It was one of these, you know, in the height of the drug war, 1989. And I walk in and I realize it's a setup. You know, there's somebody who's been devastated by drugs and a DEA agent. And so, you know, and there, it's all set up, but I just centered right down. And for me, you know, I, I've never looked back since that moment. I've known that this was my calling in life. And I feel quite blessed to have realized this at such a young well, age. But because I think, you know, Michael Pollan compared the default mode network that we now know is the neurocircuitry that gets mm -hmm. um, subdued with, with the tryptamines, so inclu including magic mushroom. And Michael Pollan says he's the closest thing to your egoic armor. Mm -hmm. And he says that it's uh, like the director of the orchestra of your brain mm -hmm. who then falls asleep. Mm -hmm. So for the first time now, all the different instruments are now free to be, they're now independent. So there is not the, 
the, the structure of your conditioning, cultural conditioning of your biography. So in that moment, you are really allowed to see who you are without this armor of, of your ego. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, for me, I don't know that I ever achieve ego dissolution, even with a very high-dose mushrooms. I mean, I know, I'm told, that I look psychotic and I can't be out in public. I'm sort of walking around. My arms are flying and my eyes look demonic. I mean, you know, so I have my, my partner who's with me and she's, you know, watching out for me and, and this sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's extremely intense, but it's very in the body. And I sometimes think of mushrooms as almost like putting a power pack on my back and that power pack like all like you're gonna fly like you know those old things where somebody puts a, you know in the cartoons or whatever puts a power pack on their uh, on on their back and they can go fly and it's like i'm going to be out there flying in a way but grounded and it can go into an intellectual a spiritual a sexual a physical direction and i can guide it a bit but i can't control it and if i try to assert my will too much the mushrooms will fuck with me. So I have to, you know, you, you, I, I'm going there. I don't go in typically with a lot of intent. It's more like, let's see what's brewing inside me and what these mushrooms will bring out. And so it's in that sense. But I will say, you know, it's a very, sometimes quite physical for me. I'm in my body in a deep and profound way. I'm feeling the energy coursing. I sometimes feel almost animalistic when I'm under the influence of these things. Um, I also will say I'm not very good at listening. If I'm with somebody, I, I've learned don't do high dose mushrooms with other people like just be in my own trip and hopefully have somebody who can keep an eye on me to make sure i'm like you know not chewing my arm off or something <laughs> well and yeah i had also had a very interesting high dose mushroom when uh, i was just start dating steph my wife and we decided to do this to be together really seriously exclusively and so she had closed her apartment in paris and all her stuff would I had arrived in New York and it was also Christmas and my mother and my father and her daughter, all the family was here. So the combination of the move in my subconscious uh, created a sense of completely, you know, I felt really disoriented and I didn't know what to do. So I did five grams of mushroom. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and that was a full on ego dissolution. And it, it remains one of, the, one of the most beautiful, but also terrifying experience mm -hmm. of my life. Mm -hmm. And it, in that moment of nothingness where your identity is gone and, and you feel part of nothing, it's really frightening. But then the, the coming together the coagulation of your identity, then it's really beautiful because you realize that the key to rebuild yourself is your personal relation, is love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's all about love. And the 60, I really understand what they meant because when you're completely gone and you, you lost not just your body, but your identity, and you when you come back, you realize that the key to understand who you are is completely, linked to the people you love around you mm -hmm. so to this day it stephanie sometimes says can you please do five grams of mushroom again <laughs> because we had i gave her this love declaration and then i came out and i hugged my mother it was like like um, like a ginsburg yeah well you know Jim, i'll tell you i mean for me there have been two times when the mushrooms went in a very dark direction and in and it was really like where everything is just black. The way you read about, I've never suffered from severe depression. I've only ever gone through a depressive episode once for a few months in my life. But it was like where everything has a black edge. Everything looks like you see the dead side rather than the live side. And and in and I used two different approaches. One which felt a little like cheating was I took some MDMA, and that helped lift me out it and make a softer, gentler experience. But the other one, which is the one I think is the one that one should aspire to, is I was on a beach, actually in Montauk, New York, at the end of Long Island, and and just in a very dark place. I mean, the sand all looked like decaying, um, you know, uh, skeletal matter, and there was some homes up, up top uh, above the beach, and they looked oppressive, and the, the greens looked, you know, ominous, and all of this. And I couldn't escape it. You can't run from a bad trip. I mean, that's the thing. And so then I, and I conceived in a way of this trip as this big, ominous wave. And for anybody who's ever gone swimming in the ocean, you know you can't run from a big wave. What you need to do is to dive 
into it, dive under it. And so I kind of almost, you know, figuratively, but even literally, I almost like dive down or like going into child's pose position on the beach and into the thing. And I came out the other end of this thing in my consciousness and the depression lifted, and every all of a sudden, those ominous-looking trees now look like a, 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 a beautiful jungle in four dimensions, and the homes were the most beautiful architecture I'd ever seen, and the, the beach was gorgeous, and, I was, and it just lifted. And so I think that understanding that when it's really bad, I mean, yes, people can just hold on and try it, but you can't run. And if you can't, if you can dive into the blackness, sometimes that's what actually brings you out the other side. Amazing, amazing. Um, LSD. Well, I have to say, LSD, I've never done the quote-unquote heroic dose. I'm a little embarrassed to say that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've done the kind of 100 microgram numerous times, and, and that's been good. To me, it feels a bit like a mushroom experience, but it's got that kind of chugga, 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 you know, stimulant side to it. It just keeps going and going. And it feels like, it feels like a, at, at the 100 microgram level for me, it feels like doing a kind of three or four grams of mushrooms, but with a strong amphetamine underneath it. And so it's been good. Um, more commonly, what I've done is to do, and I'm, I don't know, I, I, you know, it's funny, I don't know what to call it. I, I tend to think of microdosing as being, you know, three, five, below 10 micrograms. And what I would normally do would be between 20 and 30, maybe 40. And I regard that as a mini dose. Now, I just came from this amazing psychedelics and business conference in Miami, the Wonderland Miami conference. And there was somebody involved in the whole microdose field. And he was saying, no, Ethan, actually, microdosing really is in the 20 area, you know. But I felt that when I do it at that level, um, I find I, I, I like it. It's not, you know, it, I've had some wonderful times. Sometimes combining it with a little cannabis, um, I found that sexually sometimes that can be a wonderful combination, the low dose, you know, microdosing of, say, 20 micrograms, 20 to 25 micrograms for me to get a little bit of, of edible cannabis um, is a beautiful combination for that. So I've had wonderful times with friends, but I don't have that kind of spiritual connection to LSD. And... I've never done, you know, as I said, the heroic dose, and I haven't ever pursued it, and I'm maybe a little scared, and I feel like I really should give it a go, but uh, what about you? What's your experience there? Um, similar, similar. I never did the heroic dose. Um, I've done a bunch of 100, 150, you know, Amanda Nepath uh, initiated me in mm -hmm. Puglia, and uh, uh, that was uh, beautiful. I think it was more like 50 microgram. Um, I had some difficult time. Um, you know, the thing with for me with LSD is that I, I never did it ceremonially. So I never really feel safe. Mm -hmm. But like you, I'm intrigued. At some stage in one of my usually up and down, I called Rick Dublin and he said, listen, I'm ready. I want to do a high dose. I want to, you know, I was, it was one of my many middle life crises. And so Rick hooked me up with this guide in California somewhere. Um, and they, they had a protocol of three days where the first day you just, uh, you know, get closer to, to this person, to the guide, and, and then you do some breathing and some yoga. You get ready for day two. They give a little bit of MDMA just to ease, and then you go for 500 micrograms. Mm -hmm. And I was booked, and then something happened. So mm -hmm. the universe thought that I wasn't ready. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. And... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Christopher Bash, this professor of theology. I know the name, but I haven't read or, or know him. He did yeah. 73 high-dose LSD, LSD sessions in the course of 20 years. Uh -huh. So roughly every three, four months, he would go 500 microgram. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in a psychedelic conference in London, and he, he was there, and he says that, you know, 20 years, every four months, that's a big commitment. And he said that, At the beginning, you would, you know, go in the LSD realm as a, as a visitor, but then after so many times, you become a resident. Mm -hmm. And he's really saw the future of humankind. He's really become part of this cosmic consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and yeah I'm, yeah no it sounds like it's funny you mentioned uh lady amanda and uh, you know my one and only time at burning man about 10 12 years ago when i was in rick doblin's maps camp and yeah, alex gray and allison had their tent there it was really wonderful and 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 sasha shulgin and ann and lady amanda were just around the corner for me and uh, i won't say who exactly gave me the 100 micrograms of lsd but it was the last night of burning man and a friend and i just biked all around the plot and it was a weird night because everybody's leaving and so your landmarks are disappearing so you're tripping and landmarks are disappearing and you know but that was a very pleasurable experience it's incredible same thing happened to me because you you know the dome is gone (laughs) right and so they take the 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 name of the street down so it was exactly so maybe maybe one day we'll go together on the i like that top of the hill in california mdma yeah, I mean, MDMA played an important role in my life. Um, you know, there was a, a moment in my early 30s uh, when I had never done it before, and my marriage was, you know, not in a good place, really bad. And, uh, you know, we were going to marriage counseling and wasn't really looking very optimistic. And my wife and I um, did MDMA. And it was, oh my God, it was like, you know, chains peeling away, like things lifting and the sense of love that we felt. And I remember we were thinking, well, we can't do this all the time. So we, uh, you know, we sat down and thought, how do we come back to this space without the drug? And we agreed on certain things while we were under the influence that here's what we would do. I remember going to see the marriage counselor a few days later and she was blown away. She had heard about this, but to see it. And in the end, we still split up. But I think it helped us to a softer landing where my ex and I had been good friends and very good co-parents for our, you know, wonderful daughter for, you know, the last, you know, three decades or whatever. So it was great in that respect. And I think it played a, a it's played an important role in my other relationships since then, really, in being able to clear the air, being able to talk and hear in a very heartfelt way. And my great regret, Giancarlo, is it really hasn't worked for me for the last 15 years. You know, I loved it in my 30s and 40s, and now I don't get that much of the upside. I definitely get the downside, and my body's like telling me, Ethan, don't don't do it. You know, a friend suggested that I try MDA, which was kind of the predecessor to MDMA, the popular one back in the 70s. And I tried that not long ago, and I got a little more of the MDMA-ish effect, and it lasted a little longer, but it kicked the shit out of me physically for a few days. So I think now... I relish the experience that I had. Some of my most beautiful memories, especially in, in relationships with, uh, with women, have been those times. And I think it you know, helps sustain me in, in a longer relationship. Um, but I regret that, you know, I have to say it's in my past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also for me, for, for, for couple therapy, for me the magic happens because you can see from the other person's point of view. I, you know, with Stephanie, I... S- you know, under this this influence, I would see how she sees me, and that really helped. And um, we have a, a friend that uh, they have this uh, yearly tradition. They go to a, uh, this couple. They offer couple therapy in England, and um, it's basically again a three days affair. They have this questionnaire for the couple that you fill up before taking MDMA, during, and after. And it's, you know, question geared towards, you know, acknowledgement of what is the thing that don't work for you, in which way your needs are not met. And, and, and you know, it gives you a, a, such a clear perspective. So um, I remember Sa- Sasha Shulgin at Burning Man told me that you can do MDMA once a year. Oh, is that what Sasha said? Yeah. Yeah. Because you need time for the serotonin. And, and so, so, you know, which... I also wonder, are, are men more likely to burn out on MDMA than women? I mean, just anecdotally... I think, I think, you know, women seem to be able to use it longer and still get the effect. And I seem to remember that Sasha's wife, Anne, continued to like MDMA and maybe use it more often, even as Sasha was becoming more reserved yeah. about it. Rick, Rick, Rick once told me that you have the down when you try to cope too early. Basically, when you have the serotonin depletion, then you have to take the day off. You have to like, you know, the, the, the Tuesday blues, you need to like, you know, be in the countryside, not having a phone, not having to deal. The moment you try to cope, then you have to down. Yeah. So, yeah. so you need to really, even more than the preparation for the integration, you need a full day where 
you're not solicited intellectually. And then, of course, there is the serotonin integrator, 5-HTP, that, mm-hmm. that helps. But it's true that with me too, with age, the recovery is harder. Well, I even find that the experience itself, and so somebody suggests, I've been trying, like, upping the dose, I think I might try, somebody suggested, try a much lower dose, one that I would think that I would barely feel it, and see see what that's like, so I might try that, but I've literally only done it, I don't know, maybe four or five times in the last 15 plus years, and, and none of them have all really been right, so. I want to add one thing, because... You know, America is very Puritan around this idea of the recreational. And so I like to, you know, instead of using the word recreation, if you call it like celebratory. I remember two years ago, I did an ecstasy at a party. And a little bit like your experience at my, at my birthday party with the mushroom, I had 10 hours of dancing in an ecstatic celebration of life. And that also is... Um, it's good. <laughs> I, I seem to recall I may have taken a very low dose of MDMA at your party, Giancarlo, together with the other stuff. It may have been the only time it's really worked for me in the last 15 years. <laughs> now, this is my favorite, of course, ayahuasca. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've done it a couple times, once in a Santo Dime ceremony uh, in New York, actually. Um, I remember going into that one. I was a little apprehensive because, you know, I'm, I'm fairly grounded in my Jewish tradition. I have a very strong Jewish identity. My father was a rabbi. You know, it's been part of my, my life. And Santo Dime, you know, at the end of the ceremony, they're bringing up people, you know, who have, you know, have been through a serious thing to put Jesus into their lives. And a friend of mine said, Ethan, just relax. See it as you're creating a vessel for you to enjoy this experience. And so that was really, it was an interesting experience for me. I had met the shaman from Rio before. I liked him. You know, um, it was a little, you know, fairly strict, you know, men and women separate and you had to sit in your chairs and you can't cross your legs or your arms. So that was unusual. Um, but it was interesting experience. And I would shift back and forth like as a participant observer. The first time I did it, um, which was a few years before that, maybe 15, 18 years ago, was with a friend um, in Santa Barbara who's uh, led many people on their ayahuasca experiences. Uh, in fact, the way I met Darren Aronofsky, the movie director, who is the producer of my po- podcast, was this fellow, Ganga White, was our mutual guide on our first trips. And that one, that was a really remarkable experience where I basically, I had a sort of telepathic connection with somebody. You know, just, I, I, it was actually, it's a strange thing. You wouldn't think you would think about this on our ayahuasca experience, but there was a, a billionaire who played a pivotal role in the kind of marijuana legalization movement, and I had a very kind of tempestuous relationship with him. And he had sort of ridden me off, told people he, he didn't, you know, he didn't uh, want to deal with me anymore. It was all just kind of a weird and a personal thing. But I knew in my heart of hearts that there was no way we were going to succeed in legalizing marijuana until, unless he relaxed and we had a partnership. And during the course of that um, experience, I began communicating in a sort of telepathic way, doing this kind of emotional scans of him and drafting this letter to him in my mind about about love and letting go and fathers and sons and all this sort of stuff. And I wrote the letter, but nobody saw it. And a few days later, out of the blue, he calls me and says, Ethan, I'm going to give you the money you asked for, and I'm doing this to show you I love, I, st- I love you. And he never used that word with me before. So, yeah, could it be coincidence? Sure. But the circumstantial you know, uh, elements of that was just remarkable. So, so that was... Um, that was a great, a beautiful experience. It actually worked out quite well for my organization because it landed up being a million dollars he uh, came through with. You know, I, I, I sometimes joke about you know, fundraising through ayahuasca, even though that was not my intention going in. Telepathic fundraising. I think if I'd gone into the ayahuasca experience thinking I want to focus on this, the ayahuasca would have kicked the shit out of me. It's just that it came up naturally in the way it did that I think it allowed that to happen. So my, my modest explanation of this phenomenon is that you know, we have this electromagnetic field, right? But they are regulated by the ego, but by, by this the default mode network. So when DMT, like psilocybin, reduce the default mode network, then it allow the electromagnetic field to expand. Huh. And and that's how do you explain why in um, Burning Man everybody experiences incredible telepathic synchronicity? People you want to meet, people you don't want to meet. It's incredible how you know. My idea is that fifty thousand people or 60,000 or 80,000 people with the reduced default mode network 
create these energetic highways where people can tap into and make things happen. I mean, sounds reasonable to me. I, I will admit that I sometimes spend a lot less time thinking about how this actually happens or why or the science. It's, in all my studies and work on drug policy, I've typically looked at the science or the explanations for what's going on and the role in, in the brain. And I say, okay, that's for other people to kind of dumb down for me and explain. But in terms of why, and then also why ayahuasca, I mean, you know, it has more of a reputation for the telepathic experience than does, I think, most of the other psychedelics. I mean, the other ones have their stories as well. But there seems to be something special going on there. And maybe it's what you described, Giancarlo. I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, ayahuasca, yeah, my wife and I, we had a seven years practice where we drank at maybe 500 times. You know, we were, we, I mean, it's no secret. We've been very public about our addictions in the past. And, you know, we definitely, definitely, definitely credit ayahuasca if we're, you know, if we're still together. And, uh, you know, it was like maybe two, three times a year we would go to retreat. There was like a couple of shamans we would work with. And, and, and you know, we had a lot of, of reconditioning to do. We were both, um, you know, in the grip of addiction and, um, and it helped us a lot. So, you know, sometimes when you do this gratitude exercise, when you have to think about event that, um, you know, you have to think event when you're you, that you felt really grateful and memory of, of the mornings after an ayahuasca ceremony keep on coming back. When you're really heart open and really connected and you see this incredible sunrise and the nature and it's, it's, it's incredible. I've, I've goosebumps. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, I mean, because this goes back to you and I meeting, right, at the first World Ayahuasca yes. Congress in, I think it was 2014, on the island of Ibiza, where you're now living. And I remember you, had, I think you were showing a film there, and uh, you and I kind of hit it off. And I remember also seeing a really interesting film there um, with Gabor Mate. Ja the Jungle Prescription. Yeah, and I guess, but it's one where he was working with people who were, like, engaged in the harm reduction program or needle exchange program in Vancouver. So people think about, oh, this is just for the wealthy or this and that. But in fact, he was, I think, I thought he might have been ayahuasca, if I remember correctly, with people who were really had been struggling with serious addiction. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I think the potential, I mean, obviously, of, not just ayahuasca, but obviously of psilocybin and MDMA and a whole range of others for helping people who have struggled with addiction and PTSD. I mean, you know, we, I mean, everybody's reading about yeah. what's going on now in terms yeah. of the scientific research. Yeah. For me, it makes sense. I, I, I know you're not that interested on, on the neuroscience, but you know, when, when the ego is reduced, because suffering comes from this idea of the ego, if, if, you, if the ego is subdued, you can associate the painful memory, you, you can detach the painful memory with the emotion. So, so the addict who has in this loop of pain can, has the opportunity of, of detaching the pain from the memory. So the abusive parent, the, 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 the childhood trauma becomes visible without the pain, so you can transcend them. Mm. I mean, for sure, these compounds are revolutionizing psychiatry, for sure. This is this. Yeah, I mean, just being down at this conference in Miami and just seeing the presentations, and then of course following the literature, it's extraordinary what's coming out. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, whether it actually, you know, seriously undermines some of the pharmaceutical industry with their daily medications for depression and anxiety and all these other sorts of things, it would be great. I mean, we have to be careful because there will be abuses, there will be problems, people are overselling and all this sort of stuff. But I think we're starting off in mostly the right place with people looking at this. Um, how do we be responsible about this? And hopefully stupidity and greed will not undermine the progress. So, so let's talk about that for a second. I wanted to keep it on the personal experience, but, but since we're talking about the medicalization, so one of the risks of, of this big company is that um, you, know, you can't, integration is not scalable. So in a capitalistic environment where psychedelic company will compete for customer, the temptation to cut corners in things like the integration, for example, if you, you know, it's going to be cheaper if you have a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy just for two hours instead of six for the integration. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to 
you know, we'll see how this thing plays out. But we do. I mean, look what's going on with ketamine now, right? You have some very smart and responsible people who are doing ketamine, providing ketamine and doing it with proper integration thereafter. You know, I think people should look at the website of Phil Wolfson, who's one of the godfathers of the ketamine therapy. And I've met a bunch of others of late. I see these popping all up. But then you also run into people who are, you know, some anesthesiologist or something else who just sees an opportunity to make more money and they can get paid a lot of money for, you know, administering the very expensive version of ketamine that the insurance companies will pay for, even though ketamine actually is a very inexpensive drug. And they're doing it in a kind of glary lights medical environment. Maybe you put the eye shades on, but you come out of it. There's not serious integration. So, I mean, ketamine gives us, and it's short acting, which fits the kind of capitalist, you know, short amount of time model. But ketamine is an opportunity to try to get this thing right. Um, hopefully we can. Uh, you know, the other question, of course, I mean, maybe this is just perhaps too ambitious, but because the, the, the role of the importance of integration is so important after an experience and because that can also be done in a group setting, you know, it begins to present the idea of this encouraging more of a group model for this. And I know, you know, you think about, look, one of the upsides of the 12 Steps program, I mean, they don't have a very high success rate. They have lots of problems, but they do offer a sense of community for people, which is really pivotal. And just in the last week, I've heard about three different people and organizations trying to do online um, either integration of psychedelic experiences or alternately working with people struggling with addiction, where they're creating not just one-on-one sessions, but also group sessions. You know, one of the silver linings of COVID was it forced so much of this stuff to move online where you can dramatically reduce costs and it allows people to be in a group environment to oftentimes maintain some degree of anonymity and comfort, um, but where that community can be, you know, created. And if you then look at some of the potentials around virtual reality of making a community, you know, feel more intimate than it currently does over the Internet, but at a much lower cost in terms of people having to travel to one place to be somewhere. You know, there are some promising things on the horizon. So I think a lot of good stuff's going to emerge, but there's no way to get rid of all the scoundrels in this. But so since you mentioned ketamine, let's go back to the personal experience. Um, um, What's your personal experience with ketamine? I haven't had a lot of it, Um, but I will say... um, uh, there were two. Uh, one, some years ago, uh, there was a fellow named Sean Haley. Did you know Sean Haley at all? Sean had made a lot of money um, you know, in Silicon Valley, an unusual guy. Um, and then he started experimenting with um, sort of drug concoctions. Um, and he was trying to deal with his own lifelong depression. And he came up with a combination of high-dose, ketamine, high-dose uh, DMT, low-dose ketamine. And he began going around administering these to friends. And so I did that once. And that was like, whew, like a rocket, you know? And I mean, for 45 minutes, but I almost thought about it, it as almost like a Cliff Notes version of a, of, of a, of a mushroom experience or something. Cliff- so what, what, what was the dosage? I don't know the actual dose. All I know is the DMT was a high dose. Smoked. Actually, it was uh, with a needle where uh, intramuscular, where he just a little jab in the butt cheek. Um, and I had told him that Sasha Shulgin called, called, said I was a hardhead, so I needed an extra dose. So he gave me two shots. So it was like a rocket taking off. But then after 45 minutes, it was like parachute opens, and I'm kind of come floating down to earth, and I stand up. My legs are kind of wobbly from the ketamine. And a few hours later, I'm going out to dinner and a movie, right? So, you know, and I would say afterwards, for weeks afterwards, I felt like my mood was slightly elevated. My sexuality seemed slightly depressed. And and there was this funny little humming feeling in my forehead, which wasn't bothersome, but it was just kind of there. And so that was one experience. The other one was last year, a friend of mine who is herself a ketamine therapist. Um, I did it with her at her home, and she was there ma- taking care of the music and, you know, with a little notebook in case I had any notes. And total bl- it was my first time doing a real blindfold. And I did it with dissolving a couple of tabs under my tongue. Um, I, I realize in retrospect, it might have been a lot smoother just to do the intramuscular, but she didn't have that available. And, and I was surprised, Jean-Claude, how, how profound it was. 
You know, I mean, it, it was, first of all, I mean, I, I mean, there was, I won't go into the longer story, but the key thing was there was one moment um, where I had kind of turned over onto my belly and, uh, um, and, and, and I was almost entering into almost like this avatar-like environment, and I was underneath, like in some water, like in a swamp or a lake, and it's dark, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm underwater, I can't breathe. And then I go, but I'm breathing. And then I'm going, it's dark, I can't see anything. This, is, this should be scary, there could be snakes. And I realize, I'm not scared. And I just keep moving forward. And also I go, I go, my God, I could pass through death like this. And it was the first and only time I've had that kind of sensation. And I was taking with how gentle it was. It only lasted, what, an hour or something like that. But it was very gentle. It was, even with the high-dose mushrooms, I hadn't kind of had that, you know, um, escape from the body. But with that ketamine, which I think relatively high dose, I don't know what it was, but I was told it was a relatively high dose. I really felt like I kind of left my body in a way, or I was sort of in it out of it, but in this, you know, avatar, dark place that turned out to be scary, but beautiful. Well, yeah, like, I also had not very meaningful experience with ketamine, uh, probably not with the right set of set and settings, but actually yesterday I met a friend who did the full three injection in a, in a clinic here in New York, and he said it was the most beautiful experience of his life. It was like a heavenly experience. He felt he felt heaven. He felt this like unbounded compassion and 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 this incredible sense of 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 unbounded compassion and and love. And it sounds amazing. Well, I mean, you also see I mean, now that it's been approved for you know management of intractable uh, depression. I mean, that's very promising. And the fact that, you know, until a few months ago, it was the only psychedelic that the National Institute on Drug Abuse would give any grants for it to research um, for treating addiction. Um, on my podcast, I interviewed a fellow, Elias Dakwar, a professor at Columbia, who's using a combination of ketamine and mindfulness meditation to treat addiction and depression. And so I just think it really has enormous potential. And I hope it doesn't get corrupted and get a bad reputation because of people being reckless and, and stupid with it. But wh- why do you think ketamine is Schedule 3 and psilocybin is Schedule 1? Probably, first of all, the fact that it already had extensive use both um, in emergency medicine, in wartime medicine, in veterinary medicine, meant that people were already familiar with it. They'd been administering it to human beings for a very long time. So I think that helped make people you know, feel okay about it. I think, secondly, the fact that it's relatively short-acting um, maybe a, maybe a thing about it. Uh, thirdly, maybe a lower pe- people. A lot of people were taking in lower doses, where the kind of psychedelic effect was seen as a kind of negative, you know, side effect or something like that. But you were dealing with people dealing, you know, you know, emergency responders who were in parts of the country, world where they don't have opioids available using ketamine, or people on the battlefield. So I think for all sorts of reasons, it kind of got in there, were tolerated, where the psychedelic side was seen as just negative side effects. Um, whereas these other things, and it also did not start off becoming popular in the underground. It wasn't, it wasn't recreation. Yeah. I mean, LSD, you know, had a, a pr- early history in the fifties, early sixties before it got popularized by Timothy Leary and others. Um, but mushrooms have always had that recreational side to it. So, uh, you know, and I don't think there were really news reports of people jumping off balconies or, you know, that kind of thing. So... I think we're lucky in that regard that it actually was able to get get through. What about San Pedro? Did you have any experience? No, I've Pedro? never done San Pedro. I've never done peyote. You know, maybe that lies in my future. Uh, what, what, what about you? I, so I've done it. Sometimes some shaman will give it to you in the morning after the ayahuasca session to, to open your heart, to mm-hmm. like to ease a little bit in the, in the, in the post-ayahuasca. Um, I never, but but recently in Ibiza, um, I did a full-on two liters. They give you this this in I can't remember which tradition is it, but where you have the old plant, not just the not just the button. Mm-hmm. I think no, that's that's peyote. Anyway, it was a type of, it was a, a very diluted, but a, a lot. Like you drink this like two liter. You keep on drinking, 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 and uh, and it was um it was you know they they always say that. You know, the first session is a bit disorienting, mm-hmm. and then the second time you find your bearing. It was a combination of of 
of of LSD and um there was something really unusual about about it then the the the, the guide let, let us going free actually encouraged us to go and walk around and and I remember I was sitting there very confused I would have I had this image of a of a, of of some big ladies from Louisiana I don't know I was really disoriented and so this other person come by and say remember this is a cactus that um, is very hard because it lives in the desert, but then there is a flower. And so that 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 comment turned my trip into something a little bit more beautiful, but um, I, I, I'm not friends with the San Pedro yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I learned a lot. You know, I had Michael Pollan on my podcast a few months ago, and his latest book, one of the big chapters, is on mescaline. And, and, and he finds it a very powerful experience, I think. He also makes an important point that, you know, given how limited peyote is and given that there's a really highly respected indigenous use of this, you know, Native American church, that unless somebody's specifically invited in by that community to do it, that by and large people outside that community should generally, you know, not take advantage of use peyote, that you can get more or less the same thing from San Pedro. I mean, it is essentially mescaline as well. And do that. Um, so I, I think I will. I'm curious to try San Pedro and to try mescaline. I only I only did mescaline once, um, and uh, you know. But for me, it was something between a mushroom and an LSD experience. I don't know if it was all that distinctive. Um, it was powerful, you know. Um, yeah. What about uh, 5-MeO DMT, the the toad from the Sonora Desert? Well, you know, I'll tell you. A friend of mine said, you know, I was kind of scared to do it, you know, where you smoke it in 15 minutes and, you know, can seem like, you know, you know, ages and, and people's, you know, you know, with everything, you know, all the experiences you hear about the 5-MeO-DMT, whether it's the toad medicine or the synthetic and, you know, people, you know, can argue about whether the, you know, the specialness of the toad medicine as opposed to the synthetic and I get their point about it. But anyway, this friend of mine, um, you know, I said, okay, I'm ready. And he says, I actually said, I'm sorry, I'm out of the smokable type. Um, uh, uh, all I have is some snortable 5-MeO-DMT. I don't know if it was toad from the toad or synthetic. And like, you know, I've never been to cocaine. I don't really snort things. But he goes, yeah, and he put out two long white lines of this stuff. And I said, how long do you think it'll last? He goes, well, I don't have that much experience with it, but, you know, maybe a half hour or so. So I snort these two lines, right? And I trusted him because he's got a huge amount of experience as a guide. And first of all, it burned like hell. I mean, really burned, like in my sinus, you know, cavities and all that sort of stuff. And finally it settled down. But I'll tell you, five hours later, like I'm lying down there. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of still in my body. I don't go through the ego dissolution or whatever that is, you know, but it was like a kind of different version of a mushroom trip. At one point, my energy is shooting out of my legs. I mean, I mean, afterwards, my, you know, my host said, you know, were you doing Kundalini exercises? And I said, well, like, what's Kundalini? You know, I don't know. So you may not know what it is, but you were looking like you were doing it right there. And then literally five hours later, I'm coming out of it and I get up to talk to my friends and I sound like, I don't know what I did. I could not. I actually pronounced my words. And it wasn't until the next morning that I could actually get out, like talk normally again. And even then I felt like I had to drive back to another friend's house. I felt disoriented in terms of I could drive safely, but where I was was kind of in doubt. So it was a strange and odd experience. And and I don't know that this was about about four years ago. Um, I don't know what to say about it, really. I, I do think I need to try the 15-minute, you know, smokable version and try the toad medicine. Um, that sounds like people have described wonderful things about it, but some people say it's taken them a good weeks or month to fully get back to some form of yes, baseline. Yes, yes, yes. For me, it was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life, and I, I did it in the perfect condition because, you know, we have um, a men group. It's 10 of us. Every year we spend five days mostly doing ayahuasca during the day as a personal experience but also as a collective we would then share and and so at the end of day five when we already have this strong morphogenetic field of 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 you know support of our friends then we did we did this uh, we smoked the toad and um and you feel very safe it was like in a temple in england and it's like if i don't do it now. I don't know when I'm gonna do it. We were, you know, we were like five days working together. There was all this strong bond, and it was, it was, it was like one of us says, 
touching the heart of God. You felt really catapulted in, in heaven, in this blue light where you have this sense of, of, of forgiveness and compassion and, and the closest thing to heaven. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I look forward to it. It's funny, at this conference I was just at in Miami, Mike Tyson was there and just singing the praises of the toad medicine. You know, and I've heard other people just talking about how for them that's going to, they feel it's going to be their go-to substance for the rest of their lives. They'll try the other ones and whatever, they'll do them, but that 5-MeO was the one that uh, really funny. spoke to them. It's funny because I don't really feel the need to revisit that. <laughs> uh-huh. It's interesting. You know, I would I would do other things, but that's so precious. I don't know. So um, why don't we conclude with um, with normal DMT, except the couple of injections you had. Did you ever had the smoke DM, normal no, DMT? No. I mean, actually, the one we could talk about is 2CB. Yeah, because um, that was when I thought I was going to do it a few weeks ago, but it turned out not to happen. But um, I did it a number of times, about 20, 20, 20, 25 years ago or so. Um, and uh, the funny thing about, about 2CB is, is the kind of um, odd impact uh, in terms of drug set and setting that the book by Sasha and Ann Shulgin, Pical, you know, their book, Pical, Phenethylene, I've Known and Loved, there's a little section there about 2CB. And Anne describes the experience under her pseudonym of taking the 2CB and lapsing into the most devastating, self-critical, ego-wipe-outing, horrible, feel-terrible-about-yourself, I mean, just a, just a nightmarish experience and just wallowing and not knowing what to do. And then Sasha, or pseudonym, appears at the door and this beaming light emerges and the thing begins to transform. And the next thing that happens is she is having the most multi-orgasmic experience with him that she, that she's ever had. And, and so you read that and you go, Oh, okay. Like multi-orgasmic experience. Let's, let's do it. Right. Um, but in point of fact, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I mean, this is actually after my marriage, I met this beautiful woman, a journalist, American journalist who had grown up in Europe. It was in Paris in the early, mid-90s. And I went back to visit her about a month later, and, and we did MDMA together. And it was beautiful. And she lived near the Place de Vosges in Paris in an old you know, building there that had been modernized. And, but I remember we went out, and everything was gorgeous and beautiful. And, and we came back, and we were in, in the vestibule of her apartment building. And like You know how you, sometimes you want to stand on corners? Like people won't go stand on a shelf. I mean, I was doing this stuff, filling up the space. And, and then we went upstairs, and it was just loving and beautiful and all this. You know, it was just great. Anyway, two days later, I said, let's try the 2CB. So we do the 2CB. We retrace our steps, right? And it's like, what's this? And God, that needs to be fixed. And that's the, and it was this kind of critical mode. And I realized it was this critical, you know, like, uh, and then, and then we finally come back and I look at the vestibule, which looks so marvelous under, you know, MDMA. And I'm going, who designed it? You know, and then we go upstairs um, and we start relaxing and we start making love. And what I remember about the lovemaking was that, was that it was that, that my the tactile sense was, didn't feel right. It felt almost clammy, but that the, sex, the different sensations of sex were almost colorized in a really... And so there was some depth and, and specialness to the sexual encounter and all of that. So that was... But I mean, after that, I realized, Ethan, don't do 2CB with your lover right? This is the drug. Take it by yourself, right? It's like doing a lower dose mushroom for me. And when you want to kick the shit out of yourself, you know, do it that way. And so I did it. One time I was in Venice and I had just broken up actually with this woman and I was, you know, I was a rainy February day in Venice. And I remember just going down, like walking around Venice by myself and going to the Jewish ghetto and having a very spiritual connection with the Jewish ghetto in Venice. And then another time back home in New York, I've never liked the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I decided I'm going to examine my prejudices. So I took the 2CB. This girlfriend had given me a P 
pigskin vest. Now, I still keep kosher, right? So it felt like a little passive-aggressive for giving me a pigskin vest, although I guess technically Jews can wear pigskin, right? Um, I put the pigskin vest on. I can't remember did something else. I walked across the park from my, where I live on the Upper West Side to the museum. I went to the museum, which I, I, you know, I don't generally like. I, when I would see an exhibit like 12th century medieval tapestries, which I would never go to, I'd go to it, right? And it was a little more interesting because the tapestries were kind of going up and down the ceiling because I was hallucinating a little bit. But I actually had a chance to spend the whole afternoon in the museum at the quote-unquote Sasha museum-level dose, you know, beginning to get a feeling about what, why did I like this place and what might I like? And, and, with, and my aesthetic sensibilities were enhanced. And so for me, 2CB was really the one for intensive, you know, pretty hard-nosed, you know, critical self-examination. And then I kind of lost my source to it and uh, haven't done it in the last couple of decades, but I'm definitely keen to try it again. Interesting, interesting. So let me ask you, the reason why I was asking you about DMT is because, um, um, do you remember um, uh, Rick Strassman in the, in, the, in the 80s, they did the, this um, clinical trial injecting DMT to a bunch of healthy volunteers? Yeah, in New Mexico, I think. And, and, and basically they find some similarities in terms of the entities that the volunteer would encounter. Mm-hmm. And so um, now the Imperial College, I can't say too much because it's, uh, it's still um, under, under um, it's, it's still under, um, uh, they, just, they just started administrating the, 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 the trial dose, but they're basically using an IV machine to put the volunteer into DMT dose for much longer than the 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, uh, of the sponsor is that, you know, maybe that compound would allow access to these beings hmm. that they might be independent and sentient, independent sentient beings that with more time you can develop a relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, well, what do you think about this? I don't know. I mean, look, for me, you know, the, the notion of this, you know, as witnessed by my experience with very high-dose mushrooms or the high-dose DMT, I don't seem to go through this ego dissolution stuff. I seem to retain my sense of being present in my body with the exception of that brief ketamine experience last year. Um, and it may be because I haven't really done it with the blindfolds on, and maybe that might make the difference. But no, no entities? Um, no entities. No. N- not that I can recall. You know, I'm not seeing jaguars. I'm not seeing entities. I'm not doing that sort of thing. I'm not going um, through horrifying loss of dissolution of identity. Um, I, I seem, it, to me, it's, it's this... It's a way of, 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 of doing things to my mind and my body that are just just creating new connections and thoughts and things and all of this that, 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 that just feels kind of life-affirming and once in a while scary and, and hard. Um, but, you know, I wonder about that because I hear about people going through the... And, you know, and part of it is I think I've always... I, I don't think I've lived with much trauma in my life. I mean, there's been a few things, you know, but, uh, but I, I don't know why that is. I, and maybe I'm just... I'm a very grounded person. And so I wonder if the day will come when I do a high-dose ayahuasca or DMT in the more pure form or something where I actually go through that. But we'll see. Um, we'll, we'll see. see. Anyway, we'll we've see. been together an hour. You've been so generous with your personal story and sharing your... your your you know intimate situation thank you so much I, mean, John, I should also just say i mean what i also love is the fact that here it is in late 2021 the world appears to be going in some very dangerous and scary places but one of the nice things that's happening is that you and i can talk openly about this and do it for other people for strangers to listen to and to do it without real fear you know, I mean, the willing, the ability of people to begin talking first about their own cannabis use a few years ago and now about psychedelic use, it's really represents, you know, a transformation of society. There's a coming out, not unlike what happened with gay people being able to come out over time. And, and you know, I, I live, I realize there's always the possibility that the forces of repression will try to shove this genie back in the bottle and try to hurt some of us who have spoken out and come out because we know historically those things, these things do go in waves and things can go backwards. Um, so I think we need to be careful. But, you know, I'm, you and I are both out there speaking openly about these things. And, uh, you know, none of us, we're only talking about our own personal consumption. We're not talking about selling these things or making money from them illegally or things like that. For me, the podcast has just been a blast.
blast because I'm having all these wonderful people on. You know, it might be Andrew Weil and Michael Pollan. It might be the academic doing ketamine research. It was former, you know, was the U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, you know, who's the majority leader, talking to him about his marijuana legalization bill. I had the former president of Colombia, the country, Juan Manuel Santos, who won the Nobel Peace Prize five years ago. I had the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Nora Volkow, who used to run away from me, and now she's willing to be on my podcast. I've had some activists and some brilliant journalists. And, um, you know, uh, so it's everything from talking, having conversations like the one you and I are having here to talking to politicians, talking to, I had the, the district attorney of Philadelphia, who's a progressive DA. So it's really spanning the spectrum. And the question for me is whether there'll be an audience of people who want to hear one day about ketamine therapy and the next day about the politics of marijuana bill and the next day about the overdose crisis in America and the next day about how New York legalized marijuana and the next day about the head of the U.S. government's you know drug research funding agency. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm meeting more and more people, strangers, coming up to me, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and elsewhere, saying, wow, I've been listening to your podcast. And so I, I, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic that there's going to be an audience. And, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful that Darren Aronofsky, the movie director, reached out to me. I knew him a little bit from the Drug Policy Alliance days. He said, you want to do a podcast on psychedelics? And I said, no, I want to do one on all drugs. He said, let's do it. And then he had teamed up with iHeart, so he's made a lot of famous movies, but this is his first podcast venture. So it's a good team. It's professional. It means there's commercials on it, which I don't like, but that's the model. Um, and uh, I, you know. I, can see, I can see him behind the scene because you are always looking a little bit for the conflict. You, know? you find a way to disagree with your guests. I see Darren behind saying, you know, you need the conflict. Well, no, actually, he didn't need. He never said anything like that. As I say in the opening episode, I am a contrarian deep down, and I think also that to have a podcast where you, I mostly have people on there who I'm who I've learned from, who I generally agree with, but it can get boring if people are just agreeing. And therefore, I see it's my role to play devil's advocate. It's my role to challenge them, um, even if I agree with them. It's to say, how do you respond to the critics who say this? Um, so I think that's part of what makes it more interesting. Um, Amazing. Thank you very much. What's the name of the podcast and where they can find it again? It's called Psychoactive and it is on all the major platforms. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Great, Jim Carlin. Good luck with this podcast as well. And I look forward to seeing you one of these days in Ibiza. For sure. Come and visit. Thank you very much. <laughs> Coca sonara e sonara yenti Coca sonara e sonara yenti Coca sonara e sonara yenti Coca sonara e sonara yenti